Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Russia for a long time has not been the most friendly place to independent journalists. And there have been many crackdowns over the years. But what we're seeing just in recent weeks following the invasion of Ukraine is perhaps an unprecedented crackdown on independent media and free speech in general in Russia. That's Elahe Azadi. You might have heard her guest hosting the podcast earlier this week, and she covers media for The Post. Elahe has been reporting on all the ways the Russian government has started silencing independent non-state media. They have now made it illegal for these outlets to call the war a war. Since the invasion of Ukraine, Russia very quickly moved to put news outlets on notice for using terms such as war and invasion to describe what in fact is a war and invasion. And the reason for this is because this war is also an information war and outlets and even individuals who depart from the official state line of calling this a special military operation are a danger to Russia's propaganda machine, essentially. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, March 10th. Today, I'm talking to Elahe about the censorship that's happening in Russia right now. Russian independent media is fleeing the country. Western journalists are being pulled out because of the risk of landing in prison. It's affecting the information that people around the world are getting about what's going on inside of Russia, how people there are faring under all these new sanctions, how people feel about Putin's leadership. And it's affecting what information Russians are getting about the war, obscuring their reality and shaping how they feel about it. So, Elahe, if I were a person who lived in Moscow trying to understand what is happening with this war with Ukraine, what would I be seeing? If I, like, got a newspaper at the local newsstand or if I logged online and went to my local news site to figure out what's going on. Yeah, it very much depends where you look. If you're turning on the television, likely, you are by and large hearing the Russian government's version of events, that this is a special military operation. It's not targeting civilians. It's only targeting uh, military outposts and targets that Ukrainians need to be freed and denazified, quote unquote, and that there are residents in the eastern parts of Ukraine who have been begging for Russians to come save them and that Russians are the liberators here. That's the version of events that you're going to hear. It's pretty stark. And the way we know it, too, is that there have been some reports of people who are Russian who live in Ukraine, and they're calling their relatives back in Russia, telling them, you know, bombs are flying down, all of this is happening. And their relatives in Russia don't believe them because they're consuming these news reports that are essentially propaganda from the state. Oh, wow. So what if you're someone who has normally gone to independent media for all your news? 
if you have primarily gotten your news online, or if you are someone who has had reading habits of looking at independent news outlets and, and want to continue that habit, you will have to use a VPN, which is a way to circumvent a block on a website or other apps. Or, you know, if you have been listening to Radio Free Europe, or if you've been listening to the BBC, um, you might figure out a way to, to still access them. Um, Radio for Europe is still sending emails and that hasn't been blocked. So it's, it's a situation in which you as an ordinary citizen, you will have to kind of seek out the information um, if you want it. And even still there, it's filled with pitfalls. There's a lot of misinformation floating around. So it's really like the wild west out there. Can you explain a little bit more when we talk about this crackdown against independent media, media that is trying to offer up a version of the news that more reflects actual reality? What does it actually look like? Like, how is the government cracking down on some of these news agencies there? So shortly after the invasion, Russia has a state media regulator and it put 10 news outlets on notice, including one run by a recent Nobel Peace Prize winner that um, put them on notice for using words such as war, invasion, and threatened to block access to those sites. Soon after, a number of their websites were blocked and in the case of one, Echo of Moscow, which is an independent radio station that has run for more than 30 years. So just imagine everything that Russia has gone through for more than 30 years. After the government blocked access to their website, their owners, their board of directors actually voted to liquidate the website, to close down the website and the radio station. So imagine they've operated for so long and it was this moment they shut down. Hmm. Shortly after that, there was talk of a new law that parliament was considering that could ban, quote unquote, fake news about the invasion of Ukraine. And it was quickly passed by parliament. Putin signed it into law and it carries a penalty of 15 years in prison for entities found to disseminate such quote unquote fake news. So this is a really harsh penalty. And this is the law that really set off alarm bells for independent media in Russia. So then what are Russian journalists doing in response if they are under threat of going to prison, if they use the word invasion to describe an invasion, what are they able to do? Well, they're they're doing a number of things. Some of them have fled the country and they fled either with the thought, maybe I can return. I'm not quite ready to say that this is it for me to, I can't do my work anymore in Russia. How could I possibly be a journalist under these conditions? There are also some who are trying to work within these parameters that newspaper um, run by the Nobel Peace Prize winner, they had said, we are going to continue calling a war a war. And within days, they sort of reversed course and said that they removed uh, references to those words on their website, but explained why. So they're still trying to operate. And then in some cases, outlets just have completely shut down. Independent journalists help people be prepared to the reality where they exist. And that's what people lose when independent media are shut down. And uh, that's what people are eager to have in Russia. I spoke with Tikhan Dyadko, who is the chief editor of TV Rain, which was Russia's last independent 
television station. And he told me that shortly after the Russian government blocked the station's website for using these words, that that him and his wife within the span of two hours packed up their things and left the country. We realized that if we continue doing what we were doing, we would be accused of spreading fake news information. So we had a choice whether we would lie to our viewers and read statements from Minister of Defense, or we would face 15 years in jail by spreading real information. Having this choice, we decided to shut down the TV station because we think that we are more useful for our viewers when we are safe and free and when we could continue operating somehow and somewhere than when we are in jail. Tiklan also said, you know, this isn't the first time that TV Rain has faced crackdowns and difficult situations. In 2014, they were kicked off of major satellite and cable providers. Major cable networks and satellite networks, one by one, they started to call us and to tell us that they just could not work with us anymore. We knew how it worked. We knew who and when and how called them from the administration of Russian president. They were, like many other news organizations and journalists in 2021, labeled as foreign agents, which is a difficult designation to get in Russia. Uh, not only might that affect your advertising and whether sources will speak with you as a journalist, but it also creates this perception that you are a foreign spy somehow. It was made to to show to everyone that we are enemy of the state and that we are some sort of spies and that this is not safe for the advertisers to work with us and or to the speakers, et cetera, et cetera. And yet in the face of all that, they soldiered on, they continued on. But instead, it, it made us a favor. Our audience got bigger. So the number of donations and subscriptions got bigger. But of course, it was, it was very humiliating to us because we are not foreign agents or someone agents. Maybe we're agents of our viewers and that's it. Uh, but we never been told whose agents we are. And so now they have gone off the air. They used to broadcast on YouTube and they had a final broadcast where many of them assembled on the set to reminisce, to talk about their work. The final few seconds of their broadcast was scenes from the ballet Swan Lake, which folks in Russia know that means something for them. Um, during a failed coup attempt in 1991 that preceded the fall of the Soviet Union, state TV instead played Swan Lake. And so this was sort of a nod to that moment and a hope for them that better times will come. So where does that leave the state of news in Russia? 
I think about it in a few ways, right? Like I think about the information that Russians are receiving from their own journalists. Then I think about the news that the rest of the world is getting from inside of Russia. And that news is generally produced by both Russian independent journalists and correspondents for news organizations like ABC and CNN and the New York Times, the Washington Post, LA Times. And so what's overall happening is we are getting less and less verifiable news from within Russia, Mm -hmm. both the rest of the world and Russians themselves. After the break, I talked to Alahe about how foreign media outlets in Russia are responding to this censorship. We'll be right back. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. Russia's ban on accurate language about the war isn't just affecting Russian journalists. Reporters there from around the world are covering President Putin, the Kremlin, the effects that sanctions are having in the lives of average Russians. And it's an open question whether this law banning quote-unquote fake news could result in prison time for them too. Yeah, you know, it's unclear at this point. I think that is the assumption that a number of these news organizations are operating under, but they've been very careful to say, we are still assessing the impact of this law. But for now, we're temporarily doing something such as suspending operations. You know, just because it passed and there's this 15-year penalty, it's it's unclear. However, it is a very harsh penalty. And so I think it is on the side of caution. A lot of news organizations are making that move to say we are temporarily suspending this or we're making other moves to to protect our staff because there is that legitimate fear. Do you know what The Washington Post is doing if we continue to have journalists who are reporting from Russia? The Washington Post has said that it's going to remove bylines, which are the author names on stories and datelines, which is, you know, when you read a news article, it says Moscow from its stories to protect its its Russia journalists, mm. its journalists in Russia. Um, so that's what the Post is doing right now. I checked in again and they are still assessing the impact of this. The first major news organization to say that it's completely removing its staff from Russia is the New York Times. And that was a really big deal when that happened. But notably, a number of the the big TV networks, they've been somewhat vague or they have said, you know, we're not going to be broadcasting live from Russia right now, but they haven't given details on whether people have left, people are still there. Presumably, the lack of detail is to protect these individuals. So what do you think are the larger risks here as Russians are struggling to have access to independent media that is not state-run propaganda, but also we Americans, people outside of Russia, that we don't really have as much firsthand access to what is going on inside of Russia. I think the biggest risk here is it obscures the truth, right? Like we we need to know the truth or the facts of the situation in order to assess a, an appropriate response. 
that's the same for people within Russia. Like there's a lot of attention being paid on to whether, you know, the Russian people support Putin's movements here, but, but how can they really be asked that question of whether they support it or not, if they don't actually know what is going on. And then externally, if we don't know what's going on within Russia, how can the rest of the world also respond to the actions of its government? Or, you know, it raises all sorts of questions. There's a lot of, you know, there's sanctions, there's other movements happening right now to curtail and try and put pressure on Russia and Putin. But how will we be able to know the impact of these actions Mm -hmm. or, you know, like even how they play out and how people are responding to them without more information, we're just left in a truth vacuum. And that's never a good situation when you are, in the midst of war. And then the flip of it is, is not only are we getting less perhaps verifiable reporting, but there's also a lot of bad actors out there. There's disinformation, there's misinformation. And so in this vacuum, you have other things cropping up that seek to obscure the truth. So it's it's just a very dangerous situation. And And because of technology and the internet and social media apps, like all of this is moving so fast. So something that's misleading um, can gain life very, very quickly. Elahe, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Elahe Zadi covers media for The Post. This story was produced by Renny Svernovsky. These Russian censorship policies aren't just affecting journalists. They also have implications for social media companies like TikTok. Earlier this week, TikTok announced that people in Russia will no longer be able to upload new content or stream live. That includes Russians who are trying to share real news about the war with their Russian followers, but also pro-Putin influencers who've been sharing misinformation. Here's tech reporter Natasha Tiku. So far, major social media companies like Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook have declined to comment on whether they will follow TikTok's example. But the law is part of Russia's larger strategy to cordon off social media sites, including throttling access to Facebook, in the hopes that tech giants will restrict information about the war with Ukraine and push Russia's state-backed media on their services. The thing is, this is exactly what Russia wants, for social media companies to say, hey, we can't operate here with this new law, and then Russia doesn't have to ban them. They're basically banning themselves. Putin's new law could help reinforce that framing, putting pressure on tech companies to stop operating in the region without the Russian government having to explicitly say that it had instituted a ban. Natasha says that TikTok seemed unprepared for how much its users were relying on it for information about the war in Ukraine. People have referred to Russia's invasion of Ukraine as the first TikTok war because of the app's increasingly dominant role as a source of information on the conflict, both from inside Ukraine and inside Russia. But TikTok was clearly not prepared to be a real-time source of reputable information on a conflict like this. The company has been slower to announce policies and features around disinformation, state-sponsored media, and fact-checking compared to some of its peers. Natasha Tiku is a tech culture reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.